Let's continue in prayer. Father in heaven, you've given us the greatest of all possible gifts, uh, giving us Jesus. May we want him more than all this world offers us, because he's good and because he's worthy, because it's right to follow him. Because his word, your word is to be trusted. And all authority on heaven and earth has been granted to him. And as we enter this time in your word, may you have your way with us in this room uh, through it. That you would break down anything that needs to be broken down or changed, what needs to be changed, uh, built up in the ways that are needed in this room, and there are hundreds of ways, uh, hundreds of needs in this room. And you can take any sermon about any topic and begin to meet those needs. So do that work among us today, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Titus. Sometimes people have told me that I've gone really quickly through books. When I did it with John, I did a chapter at a time. We went through First and Second Samuel in just seven months, I think it was, or less than that. And Titus is going a little slower. I'll pick up in verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and, the ch- and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and dis- disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine, also to rebuke those who contradict it. So as we're moving out of verse 5 and into verse 6, we see that Paul's in the midst of his teaching on the essentials of church leadership, elders in particular. And we're moving from what we've been talking about for the last few weeks, the establishment of elders. In other words, you should have them. All right, that's verse 5. You should have elders. And now we're looking at the verses that follow, which are the character qualities of elders. And this is answering the questions, who should be one? Who should be an elder? So obviously the surface application for us, just as you just read over those verses, is, well, it's our responsibility to understand and appoint the right men into leadership in the church. And there's a partnership that takes place within a church when considering the role of leadership. Elders are responsible to God to shepherd Christ's church, and the church is responsible to God to select faithful elders. The church is responsible, elders and congregation together, to look for multiple men who will lead and shepherd and teach and model for the church Christ-likeness. 
And so we looked last week, we looked at the pieces that need to, kind of, to come together to appoint proper elders in a church. So you, it works best to have elders and to maintain healthy elders over time that you have elders already in place, that you have a congregation that understands their responsibility, that you have men with proven character and those with a personal desire to shepherd the church. These are the essential building blocks for establishing elders in a church. And I kind of thought of them as um, kind of when you're starting a building project and you have like your materials out and you may have your plans that are there available to you. You have the right tools and you have the crew. Like you have all the essential pieces to, to get building. But there's a part of this building this maintaining, this establishing that I haven't mentioned yet. So a church can have all their, their T's crossed and their I's dotted. In other words, well, we have all these lists and these qualifications. We understand our role. We understand how this is supposed to work. But we can ne- neglect something that undergirds them all. And that is this, that Christ is the one building his church, not us. He purchased the church with his blood. It's not by our own efforts that we are here. And His Spirit is empowering us. We're not to do this just in our own might. So, and we never forget that. I mean, they're, they're, it's easy for a church to say, well, we have things lined up properly. Therefore, we must be doing things right. But we are neglecting our dependence upon the Spirit of God to be the one who is actually the one overseeing all that takes place here. A passage we've referred to a couple times in Acts chapter 20, when Paul's talking to the Ephesian elders, listen to how he talks to them in, these, in verses uh, 26 through 28. He says, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Now, now to the elders, he says this, Pay careful attention. He just said something really dramatic too. I'm innocent of your blood. Now pay attention. Now pay attention Elders, to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. All right, we may have a process of ordination. We may have, say, this is what someone needs to do. This is the training they need to go through. This is our our little ballot that we pass out at our membership meeting. We may have those logistics down. But we must remember that God is the one through his spirit who appoints. It is the Holy Spirit who is the sovereign overseer of the church. So, so the appointment of elders, the establishment of elders is to be a spirit-led, scripture-directed work of a local congregation. That, that uh, portion of chapter 13 in Acts when um, the church in Antioch is meeting. It says, while they were worshiping, the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. I'm not expecting a voice from heaven to appear or to be heard in our membership meetings. But I am expecting a prayerful and Holy Spirit-led unity in selecting men for leadership. The last three 
I would say, major leadership changes at Countryside. This would have been um, bringing on, on Aaron and, and Matt, and then even my transitioning into to this role here at Countryside. One of our elders used the phrase, we need to be looking for God's man for this role. Because you, you can look on paper and you can see, well, you know, they have these qualifications. They have this, you, know, you can kind of look at it just from a, a reason, reasoned standpoint. Let's reason ourselves to an answer. But that's incomplete. We need to be saying, God, we need you through your spirit to lead us to the man that you would have for this position. So the answer or the process, this comes prayerfully, not just procedurally. It's a matter of the Spirit's leading. It's not just a matter of logistics. Because we are a, a living organism. We're not a factory. Okay? Factories have cold parts, and they just kind of push people through the cogs. This is saying, Lord, we need your Spirit here to work to show us what you want. We need to have the people that you desire in this place. It's the Spirit and His Word. All right? his, his Word lays it out. It's really clear. We're spending time there. But I'm saying, Lord, by your Spirit, show us. I don't want Countryside to be merely an, a very organized church. I want us to be a people who know Jesus, who walk as ones full of the Holy Spirit, full of the fruits of the Spirit, full of the good works that Titus talks about here, because we love Christ. So abiding in Christ and alive in the Spirit. And so the elders are to lead this charge. So basically what I'm saying here is that this is a supernatural work that we're involved in here. You understand that? Like, this isn't just a formality. It shouldn't be. It's not just a duty that we perform, but There's a war going on, and it's a supernatural war going on, and we're engaged in it. And we'll, we'll be ineffective if we forget that piece. So that, that's relevant to our understanding and establishment of leaders in a church. So as we go now into verse 6, the question really for us today is, what kind of man do you want to spiritually lead you? What kind of man do you want in this role? Number one, the life of an elder must be above reproach. I think this is kind of the umbrella term to understand how do we find those who should be elders in a church. He mentions it in verse 6 and in verse 7, that he must be above reproach, or the King James says blameless. So while an elder won't be sinless, he must be blameless. Is that going to be perfect? But he is going to be able to withstand any serious charge against him. If a charge is brought against him, it should be able to be dismissed for lack of evidence. His life should match with the commands of Christ. See, he, he can't be a fake or a liar or a hypocrite. Like in our legal system, someone could have charges brought against them. And they could have to go, and they have to go and um, perhaps stand even before a judge, and, they, and the evidence is maybe looked at and considered. And then at times, the, the charges can be dismissed. doesn't mean this, this man is perfect, or this woman is perfect in all that they do, but the charges aren't able to hold up enough to, to bring a charge against them. 
<clears throat> I think that's what we look at. We see these qualifications in verses 9 through 6. That should be the case where, well, we know this man isn't perfect, but we know that in light of these qualifications, you know, there's not enough to go forward here to dismiss him. So he's above reproach. I think it's interesting that Paul uses this same word in Colossians 1, speaking of us in relationship to the gospel, our standing before Christ. He says, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in the body of his flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. One day we'll be able to stand, if you're in Christ, before him, above reproach, where all the accusations would be dismissed. You'd be innocent because you're now in Christ. So an elder must be one who can stand in any room with any group of people and to be able to withstand any charge of disqualified wrongdoing. All right, so it, it says not to be one of the things, not to be greedy for gain. So I should be able to stand up here and, and have everyone say, has anyone here, or has, it been, has anyone seen a pattern of Rob being greedy for gain? And the, and the, and the um, result of that question going out should be, well, I, mean, I did see him do that once, but I, you know, well, I should, maybe shouldn't say that. But I mean, like, it's not his life. That's not his pattern of life. You know, he doesn't seem to be a man who's greedy for gain. So that charge can be dismissed, all right? And, and the world doesn't see leadership that way, all right? It's a, it's a story we hear all the time, that there is a, you know, a man who, who, who's an, adul- uh, an adulterer, but he's, but he's a great CEO of a company. And so there's this contradiction in how they lead. They, well, they can lead one way at home, and they can lead another way at, way at work. But in the church, who a man is and what he does can't be separated. You should be able to go to other people in my life. Perhaps those who've known me well. I can look around this room and say, you should be able to go to Pastor Lily and, and Lindy and others who have known me for a long time. And be able to ask them, talk about my life, talk about my past. And you shouldn't hear stories about any behavior that would show me to be a fake or to be putting on a show of blamelessness, living a secret life of unrepentant sin. I said this last week, I said, I said an elder should be an obvious choice. So we're going to be all gifted in different ways. All right, some elders are going to be strong in certain areas of gifting, and others will be gifted in other areas. And, and, that, and that way, we're different. But in these qualifications, we should all be the same in meeting them. So we're going to look over this week and next week over four headings of the life of an elder. The home life of elders, the interpersonal life of the elders, the personal life of elders, and the doctrinal life of elders. I phrased that, that, phrase it that way because we're looking at his life, different areas of his life. What's the pattern? And so today, the home life of elders must be above reproach. Paul begins in the area of the home, to be above reproach in the area of his home life. He says in verse 6, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, 
and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So there's the, the area of his, his relationships at home. So we can break this down into two ways, two questions. How does he love his wife is the first one. How does he love his wife? He must be the husband of one wife. Or the husband of one woman or, or one wife. You know, this, of all the of, the, of six through nine, this is the most complicated of the verses. This is the one where Christians have differing views, trying to understand what exactly is Paul saying. And I want us to be really practical today because these verses are intended to be practical. We're supposed to take them and apply them. We're supposed to use them. And this first one, husband of one wife, has been understood in several different ways. All right, number one, one way it's been understood is that he must be the husband of one wife. In other words, he must, an elder must be married. He must be the man of one woman. And they also often will use the phrase, he must have children, all right? I've known people to have that view. To be an elder, you must be married, and you must have children in order to meet this qualification. Um, I understand the motive. There's, there's lots of, like, reasons why that, there's benefits to being married and benefits to having children. I don't think that's what Paul means in this passage, though. All right. Another view is that there are those who take this to mean that a man can be married once in his life to remain an elder. All right, he must be the husband of one and only one wife. So obviously, this rules out polygamy. All right. There were some who would even say that this would apply to a widow or a widower, that if a man's wife dies, he cannot remarry because then he would become disqualified because now he has two of them, two wives. I don't think that's what Paul's intending here either. But that would be a view that some would say. It's the one wife status needs to be maintained. And I'll put under that this uh, very, very common uh, understanding that this would mean that one must have only one wife and therefore someone cannot be divorced and be remarried. And if they are, then they can't be an elder. This would also apply to deacons. So absolutely no divorce and remarriage in church leadership. And then the next view that I'll, the last view I'll mention here is that Paul is teaching that an elder must be a one woman, woman man, all right, that he is a man who is faithful to one woman in his life, <clears throat> meaning that he must demonstrate to be a devoted husband to his wife. It must be obvious and proven over time that this man is fully and only committed to loving one woman. So in this last week I'm mentioning, Paul is really speaking to a character quality of a man rather than just a statement about marital status or marital history. If Paul is trying to drive at, how does this man love his wife? And I'll tell you, until recently, as in a couple of weeks ago, I would have held the view um, that someone who was divorced would never be able to be an elder. That's been my view for 20 years. I've understood it that way. 
that he must be a man who's never been divorced or remarried. But looking at this passage and looking at a verse in, uh, even in, in Timothy where Paul writes and describes wid- widows in this way, widows who are to be cared for the church, that they are to be wives of one husband, I think he's describing a, a character quality that he, Paul, is referring to an elder who's a man who must be above reproach in the devotion to his wife. He is to be faithful to her. And that everyone in his life would affirm that he is a man who is a one-woman man to his wife. That this is a character quality describing this man. So I want to clarify it. I think I'm clarifying it for you because I had to clarify it in my own mind as I work through this. God wants men of a certain quality. He's not merely looking for a man with a certain marital history. But with that said, this does not mean that a man's marital history is irrelevant to the question. So I'll explain. And again, I want to explain it because there may come a day where we would actually have to talk about this and discuss this and make a decision about this. So I'm not convinced that a believer who was married young, was married for a few years, divorced his wife, then at some point becomes a believer, is fully faithful to his wife for 35 years, would necessarily be unqualified as an elder. Now he might be, all right, he might be. It could be determined that he was disqualified even after 35 years, if he's not a man who is above reproach with regard to his marriages, all right? So it would take some investigation and determination. But the reason why I'm coming to this conclusion is I, I don't think Paul is looking at the divorced man and saying, I'm, I'm, I'm going to talk to you about this kind of man, and that's my point. I think his point is saying, I'm looking, we're looking for a man who is above reproach in the area of being committed to his wife. So I present this, and maybe you don't feel, maybe that, like, maybe that makes perfect sense to you, but I suspect there's many in this room who wouldn't see things in the way I just described them. I wouldn't have seen it that way a year ago. So I say it with caution because I would be exceedingly careful in the application of this because marriage and family are essential to a man's qualification, and a divorce is no small part of a man's reputation. So we need to strongly consider this and weigh this. But I think what Paul is saying is we need to find a man who is absolutely, in every way, obviously committed to loving his wife and his wife only and has demonstrated that faithfully over a long period of time. So to married men, I want to give some application here. If you are even in the slightest way, if in any way you have the slightest reputation of not being faithful to your wife, you are excluded from being an elder. Your love and commitment to your wife should be obvious in how you treat her and how you show affection for her and how you interact with other women. In having conversations with people over the years, I've I've, I've discovered there's, there's, there's one way to test this. There's multiple ways. I think men can be 
semi-observant of these things. And I've learned that women can be more observant of these things. All right? And if my wife were to say to me, when I'm with this man, I'm uncomfortable. That says a lot, doesn't it? Now, I might not notice something. Or anyone, I've also known, maybe you've noticed this too about women. They can perceive things sometimes men cannot perceive. So they may not be, feel uncomfortable themselves. But if there are women in the church who say, he shouldn't, I'm not comfortable the way that he interacts. That is a, um, it's one of the tests, I think, that shows these things. And so men need to be thoughtful, careful, and committed in this area. And if you're not married, if you're known as a guy who's kind of um, inappropriate with women in your dealings, know that you're building your reputation and your character even now. And the things that you do now don't just go away. They maintain your reputation. Elders and future elders are to be men who love their wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. All right, Jesus didn't give himself. Jesus gave himself for one bride and one bride only. His love is singular for his church. He has, has always and will always be faithful to his church. He died to save his people. He lives to bring them home. So Every man this, in this church should be looking to say, how does Jesus love us? How does Jesus love the church? How is he committed to us? And say, that is how I will live my life in my commitment to my wife. That is the standard that we are to uphold. That is the standard that we should expect from everyone in this room. That there should be no leniency or deviation from these things. People should come to our church and say, wow, all the men here really love their wife. And I can see it. And every man here can get better at it. So we should strive for that. And an elder must demonstrate it and strive to do it more. The second point, understanding the home life of, a, of an elder. The home life of an elder must be above reproach. And the second question to ask and Deciding this is, how does he lead his children? How does he lead his children? Now, if we thought the first question was difficult to answer, this one's more difficult, all right? Christians may disagree on that question of divorce and remarriage or how we understand that. Well, they're going to they're gonna try to understand this verse, and it's going to be just as difficult. Children are to be believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, 1 Timothy 3, that was read earlier by Pastor Lilly, he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? All right, there's a reason here given in Timothy 4. Living your home 
is a prerequisite for leading the church. If you're going to lead there, you have to lead here. So really, in Timothy tells us to be looking at his, his parenting. How does he manage his home? How does he um, keep his children submissive? So, so we're looking at how does, he, how does he parent. But Titus is a little different. It tells us to look at how his children respond to his parenting. How do they behave? Are they faithful? All right, he must be above reproach in how he leads his home. And here's the thing, and how his children respond to his leadership. There's a lot of questions about that. What is, what is Paul saying here? Some would say, all right, Paul's just referring to children at home. Basically, younger children. It's about obedience and children who are faithful and submitting to their father's leadership while they're under his roof. In other words, he is a good manager of his house. I think that is certainly true. I don't think we can be so narrow as to limit it only to that. Because in verse 6 of Timothy, or Titus, he says that they can't be known for debauchery and insubordination. They can't be known for living a riotous life or in rebellion. Now, it's hard to think of a 12-year-old living a riotous and debauchery, debaucherous life. Now, it's possible, possible, but I think this would likely be a description of a more mature or even adult child. So I, I, I think that Paul is looking beyond young children to children in general. So how are this man's children living their lives? What, what's, what's their lifestyle? Did the children heed their father's teaching or did they disregard it? This kind of hinges on this word believers. Are children to be believers? Could this be rightly understood to be they must be born again Christians? If not, then he can't be an elder. Is that what Titus means here? They must be born again. Another possibility is that they are to be faithful. They are to be children who are faithful to how their father led them according to God's word. All right, Paul uses this word immediately right here in the text in Titus. In verse 9, he says an elder must hold firm to the trustworthy. All right, the King James the New um, American Standard translates that word faithful. It's the same word, that he must hold firm to the faithful word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and be able to rebuke those who contradict it. In chapter 3, verse 8, he says, this is a trustworthy, I'm sorry, this saying is trustworthy. All right, it's actually, this is the saying is faithful. Same word as believers. I think that the idea here is that children of an elder must be faithful to what they've been taught. So he must demonstrate through his successful leadership at home with his children that he can successfully manage the church of God and God's children. I'm emphasizing that word successfully.
So just a good effort isn't what Paul's saying. He's saying you should be able to look at how he led and then how did his children respond. That's a factor here. That's a factor in understanding a man for leadership. The gospel should be preached at home. Obedience to Christ should be taught and modeled. And there should be some pattern to follow that leading in the children. Now, we can't know a child's heart. But we can observe how a child of an elder behaves. We can observe how they are faithful to what they've been taught by their fathers. Obviously, I think children living at home need to follow their parents' lead. I also don't think that, I, I don't think that we're called to like, examine the heart of every elder's child and say, are they actually born again? Let's bring them in. Let's do a little interview. Let, let's try to really gauge what's going on inside of them. I don't think that's the case. But if there was an elder who has a Christ-rejecting, rebellious, open, consistent heart that is going against everything that he has been taught, now if, if that was going on in an elder and the child was young, if that was the pattern of a 16-year-old or a 17-year-old or an 18-year-old, I, I would say that elder should step down, at least for that time, to work with that. I mean, he needs to be devoting his time there. But consideration of a man's child should not, I don't think, be limited to the time when they're at home. All right? Adult children remain a testimony of a father's leadership. And there's, no way, there's no way to deny that if a man were an elder of a church and he raised his children as a Christian, I'm talking about, like in, a, in their home, and none of his children were we're following the Lord. There's no way to deny that it wouldn't affect this question of being above reproach. You can't, you can't say it wouldn't be a factor in people's minds and trying to look to them as an example. And again, I, I understand this not as being born again. All right? I don't think that they, that's our job to test that. But it's a general observation are the children demonstrating a measure of faithfulness to what they have been taught? And it's, that's a subjective call, I understand. But it's, it's a factor that we're called to, to make and, and to, to examine. Faithful children, say children faithful to the truth, are a gain in a man's ability to lead. And rebellious children, no matter what their age, is a, is a hardship in the area of being able to lead. Now, there are certainly lessons, and I have not raised adult children yet, all right? So I understand there are things here that like, okay, well, what's that going to be like for me, Rob? I'll get to that in a minute. That's a scary thought. It's, it's, a, it's a humbling thought. And I don't think we should look at elders and say their children must be perfect. Or their children should never get into trouble. It's just saying, Paul's saying, you're to look at how he leads and you are to look at how his children respond to his leadership. It's that general principle. 
and we say, now we're called to discern, is this man above reproach in these ways, in these areas? It's appropriate to examine the success of a man's efforts at home. I'm going to read a quote that I read in a book by Gene Getz. I thought this was, I agree with just about what he said here. He says, one word of caution, he wrote. The fact that some grown children, I'm sorry, some grown Christian children go astray from God's will does not always mean that a man has not been a good father. The home is not an island. The world's influences are sometimes felt, no matter how effective the Christian environment in his home. Furthermore, once children leave home, Satan can sometimes gain access in ways that did not necessarily reflect on parental effectiveness. So be careful. Paul is establishing a general principle. A well-ordered household usually reflects maturity in parents. But a black sheep in a family is not always, disqual- is not always a disqualifying factor by which we may determine that a Christian will not make a good spiritual leader. It is true, however, that if a wayward son or daughter hurts their reputation the rep, uh, of a father in a particular community, it would be wise for that father not to maintain a prominent position in the church. Oh, that was just good, wise, general principle there. So I think it's a good summary. And you can see these are, these are weighty things. And probably all the elders of countryside are more humbled by these two qualifications than anything else. Because, you know, it's one thing to examine certain qualities. Like, well, is Rob, is Rob, is Rob getting drunk? I feel like really comfortable with that one. I can talk about that and feel really great. But it's like, let's, let's get in on his family. Let's start looking at his family. How, how's, he doing with, how's he doing with Lindy? How's his, wife, how's his marriage going? And then, then all of a sudden, they take it to another level. And, and believe me, I've seen lots of parents who get really defensive when you start talking about their kids. Let's start seeing how he's parenting. How are his kids doing? That's really... That can really make somebody feel insecure. Most men would hang their heads if you were to deeply examine how they have loved their wife, how they have remained sexually pure, or their success in marriage. It is by the grace of God that any man would be above reproach in this area. I don't say that because all Christian men are bad husbands or unfaithful or slave to sexual sin. But apart from the grace of God, no man would be qualified to be an elder. Pastor Lily says this pretty frequently. That if, uh, that if, if Satan can't get at the man, who's he going to go after? The kids. Right? Because it matters. It's not an irrelevant question. It, and it's not just because that really hurts the, the, the elder. Like, 
hurts them as a father, apart from being a pastor, but it also has the capacity to make him not be able to be a pastor. All right, that's a possibility. That's a vulnerable point for pastors. Maybe more than anything else in their life, they need you to be praying for this. This is where they most often feel insecure and vulnerable and weak. It's got me thinking, you know, where would any of us be apart from the grace of God? Where would any of us be apart from the power of the gospel to, to save us? Like, like, think about your life. If it were not for the grace of God in your life, where would your marriage be? Where would your children be? How about your private life? Technically speaking, it would be in darkness. We would be no matter how good it looked on the outside, it would be in shambles on the inside. Every man and woman and child here is dependent on the grace of God to make us what we are not. To make the dirty clean. To make the blind see. To make the dead live. I thought of what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15. But by the grace of of God I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Where would we be as a church apart from Christ? About apart from his grace. Again, just I'm, I'm seeing all your faces, but, you know, think about this room, think about your own life. Would you be divorced apart from the grace of God right now? Would you be abusive in your relationships apart from the grace of God? Would you be slaves to your sin? Would you be, would it, would it be anger and bitterness that would rule you apart from the grace of God? Because some of you know what it would be, like a, some of you know because you lived there for a long time. You got saved later in life. Some of you are young and maybe, or maybe you've been saved since you were young, but you know you've learned over time, apart from the grace of God, I wouldn't be where I'm at. And I can tell you, apart from the grace of God, I wouldn't be standing here at all. You've heard the phrase, but by, but by the grace of God go I. By grace, I'm married. By grace, I'm saved, changed, indifferent, alive. And any beauty in our lives, any goodness in our life, any way that we're above reproach, because these qualities are not just for pastors and elders. Everyone here should say, I want to live a life that's above reproach. That I'm not at work, or I'm not in the dorm, or I'm not where I'm at. And people could say, well, let me tell you some stories about so-and-so, because i got a list of them. No one else knows them, but I've got the list. And they could bring it out, and they could show you, and you would be sad and ashamed. 
None of us should want that. We should live our lives so that we are above reproach no matter who we are. And if we develop that pattern in our life, I'm telling you it's only because God is good. It's not because we're good at it. We're not good at being above reproach. It's His grace. So I I pray that everybody here knows the grace of God in their life. That you've experienced being saved from death to life. That you've experienced what it's like to have your life lifted up from the gutter. And we, have, we say this sometimes. We say that God makes sinners holy. All right? you know, God saves sinners and makes them righteous. Do you realize the distance between the words sinner and holy is infinite? That he would take a sinner and make them righteous. Now, not only just righteous in Christ and our standing, but ultimately he will make you holy as he is holy. That's, that's the end result. And that distance is very far, and none of us could get through the distance between sinner and holy. It's only by Christ coming, paying the price for our sin, that he was made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of Christ in him. That's how it happens. And that's all because of his grace, and all because of his kindness. So I think of me saying these words today, how could I ever be qualified to even speak these words, let alone live them. And there's only one answer to it. It's because of the grace of God. So I want us to stand, and I want us to sing to close our service. And we're going to sing a song we all know, and we're just going to sing an a cappella. But I want us to stand, I'm going to pray, and we're going to sing Amazing Grace. Because, yeah, go ahead and stand, sorry. That was an unclear standing announcement. I just want everybody to be amazed by grace. Amazed by the fact that you're even in this room able to worship Jesus right now. Because don't take it for granted. Because not everybody's doing it. Not everybody's marriage got saved. Not everybody's temptations were overcome. Not everybody got rescued out of the situation that you grew up in. It's God's grace. Father, none of us here is qualified to do anything for you and ourselves. And as I look at family life and children life, that even seems like harder for a, a pastor to try to manage. Well, how are my kids going to do? Like that seems one thing for me to kind of be self-disciplined about something, Lord, but I need your grace, not just for me, but for my wife and for my kids. And our church needs your grace to fill every space. Help us to be amazed that you've been that good and that you've been that kind, and that you've sent us your Son to bridge the gap between sinner and holy. In Jesus' name.